The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Under Section D, uh, within the larger framework of of working at and and seeking to refine and to um, articulate the eschatological structure of of the document, as that is such a controlling um, element in the teaching, uh, we're looking at these uh, perennially debated uh, crucial passages on apostasy. And you remember what we've done so far, we uh, described looking at, and the three passages are there on your outline sheet, remember. Uh, we looked at the situation in view, broke that down under several uh, subcategories. The, we then noted the dilemma, um, how, and that is, in, 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 is essentially is this, how are these passages uh, compatible uh, with the teaching that we find very clearly elsewhere in Scripture um, that um, those who God sovereignly calls to Himself, uh, not one of them is lost. Now, we're in the midst then, point three, of some proposed solutions. Uh, we've mentioned, I think, just at the end, uh, the very widespread view, particularly among uh, within the Reformed tradition, that the situation in view is hypothetical. Um, hypothetical. Um, I guess maybe I, that was just... Uh, had I talked about that at all? I, okay, I think that's where we are then. I think maybe I just uh, indicated the view that, um, that the, the renewal in view has to do with rebaptism, and that, um, that got taken up into the view that... Um, that baptism can only cover pre-baptismal sins, and so that that understanding of the passage gives rise uh, in the medieval theology to the system of penance and purgatory that got developed. Now, the view then, this would be a much more, uh, in the third place, is much more widely entertained that the, that the situation described here uh, is hypothetical. Um, so that um, the paripatia, just put it in grammatical terms, the, um, the falling away here indicated in, the, in, in this participle, the fifth of the participles in uh, control by the tooth, describing this group as uh, those who fall away, um, the force then as it uh, can be given uh, the conditional force if they fall away, that in fact then is seen here as an unrealized condition, an unrealized condition. Uh, appeal in defense or, or in articulating this uh, position, appeal is made particularly uh, just a few verses on to ver- uh, in chapter 6 to verse 9. Look at 6-9. Uh, uh, the writer goes on to say, and we'll have occasion to look at the intervening verses, so I won't read them uh, uh, right now. But the writer says, uh, We're confident, we're persuaded concerning you, beloved, uh, we're, cons- uh, we're persuaded of better things and the things that pertain uh, to salvation. 
uh, even if we speak this way. Uh, and that then is, is taken as an indicator that the, that the writer doesn't really think that what he said applies to, the, uh, to his readers. So that this is strictly, as a warning passage, it's strictly hypothetical for true believers. Um, why then is uh, it put just this way? Well, frequently the additional thought is brought in to, to, uh, to explain here that what this passage does then is, is particularly it's designed to unsettle uh, hypocrites, false confessors. But uh, really, uh, this may caricature a bit representing this position, but what it comes down to so far as believers are concerned is that we have a kind of scare tactic on the part of the writer. Um, a, a, a really uh, a kind of a half-hearted uh, stimulus, uh, half-hearted in the sense of it really being hypothetical, uh, a stimulus to self-examination to be a better Christian. But really what this view uh, boils down to, I think, uh, is something like this. The writer warns them of the danger of apostasy and then assures them that, after all, there is really no danger of apostasy. He warns them of apostasy and then, in effect, as you come to verse 9, uh, assures them that in their case there is really no danger of apostasy. Now, I just want to set that view out here, uh, not interact with it further. Uh, and as we go on in our discussion, we'll have opportunity to, um, to uh, pick up on, um, uh, interact with it further. <clears throat> Another view that has been um, proposed, and we can, uh, well, I'll mention several other strands here, and I just I mention them mainly not because they have been so influential or emphatic, but they might come um, as you reflect, work on the passage yourself, they, or think about it, they might enter your own mind, and uh, just to show you that they haven't that they haven't thought about before and uh, the problems with them. Um, sometimes the adunaton that is highlighted here at the beginning, the impossible. Um, what uh, the way that's explained is is something like this: that what this express. Oh, uh, let me back up just a second. It's also applied implied in the uh, chapter twelve passage about Esau when he sought repentance, he was not able, he he couldn't obtain it. So um, connect that uh, with this impossible here. Uh, the reasoning goes that what or the proposal here is that what this expresses is what is impossible for man, but not for God. And then we would have an appeal, as you might expect, to the synoptic material. So we have it in Mark um, 10, 27, that what's impossible with man is possible with God. Um, I think uh, what we should say here at the bottom line is that this explanation is adunaton. Um, uh, the reference here, and particularly as it's placed at the beginning of the uh, construction in, in that emphatic position, the reference here is absolute. Uh, there is no indication uh, in the uh, context of any qualification such as this view we're just talking about introduces to tone down on the impossibility. 
Well, uh, that toning down takes place in another way uh, by arguing that, in effect, what we have here in the Adunaton is hyperbole. Uh, the writer really doesn't mean it. What he means is difficult. Not impossible, but difficult. And, and again, that... Um, In the abstract, I suppose that wouldn't be uh, totally adunatone, impossible. But again, you, you have the, um, there's just really no, um, no, no exegetical uh, support for that. A further uh, proposal is to give the participles that um, describe the consequence here, um, or, or describe, excuse me, the reason, the basis for uh, their not being impossible to renew, uh, that the re-crucifying to themselves and putting Christ uh, to uh, open mockery. Um, the uh, approach here is to give these participles a, a temporal or a circumstantial force so that uh, the reading here would be uh, something to this effect. It's impossible to renew these ones as long as they uh, re-crucify. Uh, as long as, uh, circumstantial or temporal. Uh, and that, I'm trying to bring that out, uh, how that would come out in translation. As long as they uh, put him to shame. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, uh, who mentions this view and rejects it, uh, puts it very neatly this way. This is in his commentary on the passage. Uh, he says, that would be a truism hardly worth putting into words. And I think that's very much to the point. A truism hardly worth putting into words. What we have here is, uh, or what we have to consider here, is that a causal force a causal force, not a circumstantial or temporal, but a causal force is, is uh, demanded here. Uh, these participles specify why they can't be renewed. This gives the reason why it's impossible. Uh, one other... Uh, proposal we might mention that comes out uh, more in, as I would gauge it, more in, uh, in, 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 the, in the, what we could describe as the more popular teaching uh, on this passage in the church. Um, I, I encountered in one um, more popularly written commentary, that of George Bowman. Um, and the point here is that the falling away that's in view here, the rejection, uh, as it's put does not have to do with salvation, but with service and rewards. In other words, it, it's, it's not really a, 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 an ultimate personal rejection that's in view, but um, it has to do with, uh, doesn't concern the salvation of those in view, but uh, uh, the reward they will lose in, because of their... The, the flawed character of their service. And again, I, I think just you know, judge for yourself on that. Does that really do justice to the terms of the passage here? 
So these are the lines of uh, discussion uh, or, or uh, solution that have been proposed uh, on this passage. In chapter 6 primarily, it would have implications for the other passages that, that we have together here in chapter 10 and chapter 12. Um, not to say that there haven't been other um, uh, approaches too, but it seems um, this gets at the, at the situation fairly fully anyway. All right, if we reject these various lines, um, how then um, ought we uh, to understand the picture here? So that brings us to our fourth main area, uh, which we can call toward a solution. Put that designation uh, to it, which we'll try at least to get to the... Um, a heart of, of the resolution of the apparent dilemma that we have here. Now, uh, looking back over the, our discussion so far, uh, we can say as we work toward a solution uh, that our point of uh, departure must involve, um, must keep in mind uh, these considerations. What these passages describe is, and I'm trying to formulate this just uh, uh, carefully now, a real experience of gospel blessing. They describe a real state of gospel beatitude. A state of gospel beatitude. Um, just um, picking up on the actual uh, language of the passages, it involves, for instance, a partaking of the Holy Spirit. Partaking of the Holy Spirit. These are all factors that we drew uh, more careful attention to when we were analyzing the passages last time. Again, a knowledge of the truth, also described as a knowledge of the Word of God. Uh, even more uh, striking, uh, strong and striking in some respects, sanctification by the blood of the covenant, chapter 10. Sanctification by the blood of the covenant, and that can only be the blood of the new covenant, the blood of Christ. And uh, more generally, and yet uh, quite pointedly still, um, a... Uh, Experience, in some sense, of the grace of God. The grace of God, chapter 12. So we must keep that in mind as we uh, continue to reflect on the passage, um, that there is a real experience of gospel blessing. Uh, no matter how further, um, no matter what may be that we have to go on and, and say about this, uh, define it more exactly or whatever. Uh, and the second factor, then, is that there is in view in these passages an apostasy, and it is an apostasy that is irreversible. A falling away from this gospel blessing. So, uh, what we're saying, to put those two points together, 
uh, is our point of departure here as we work through the passage, is that there is uh, real beatitude and a falling away from that beatitude that is no less real. A real experience of beatitude, a falling away that is no less real. Um, and and I, I present that is that is those considerations. We can't lose them. They are uh, the exegetically non-negotiable as we uh, work into the passage now and reflect further. <clears throat> now, uh, also at the outset, let me highlight this, and it, this will certainly become clear, I hope, as we go along. If I if even if I didn't highlight it. But uh, the key here, it seems to me, for um, appreciating what the writer is concerned for is the category, the reality of the covenant. The references to the covenant that we have in these passages. Uh, not only, not so much explicit reference, but certainly allusion to the covenant. And particularly that we'll have to keep in mind um, and this is really not something that I have worked with uh, in our own exegetical work here, but especially as you read your assignment in Voss, uh, it comes through very clearly. Uh, the covenant framework is simply uh, uh, essential to the writer in, in everything that he has to say. So, there, the, so the whole covenant orientation is what we have to uh, um, keep in mind and bring to bear on the situation. Now, with those uh, opening um, emphases or, or accents, let's proceed uh, through several uh, steps here, dividing our discussion up. And this, this uh, fourth, this toward a solution section will get uh, somewhat long. We probably will be with it for the rest of this, uh, rest of today, maybe even in the next week. Now, uh, let me. I draw into our discussion here an article that appears uh, about 10 years ago now in the Calvin Theological Ver uh, Journal by an individual by the name of Berlin Verbrugge. That's uh, Calvin Theological Journal for volume 15, that's 1980. Um, and you'll don't have the exact pages here, but you, you'll find it without any trouble. It's an article on Hebrews, the Hebrews, the chapter six passage, verses four through six. Now, um, Verbrugge's basic uh, line of approach is this: he faults previous exposition of the passage uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, he sees the problem with the way in which the passage has been understood. Uh, problem, first of all, is that traditionally what is seen here, the problem that is raised, uh, concerns the, uh, the possibility of individual apostasy. Um, maybe I should say that again. I may not have made that clear. Uh, the, the first fault that he finds with uh, traditional approach to the passage, conventional approach to the passage, is that that approach sees the issue to be the issue here to be 
the, uh, the possibility of individual apostasy, the apostasy of individual believers, rather than the covenant community as a whole, where Verbrugge thinks the accent has to be put. So you see, he's drawing a distinction between the individual and the corporate, uh, the particular believer and the, and the covenant, and he's saying the problem has been that traditionally the approach has been on the issue of individual apostasy and sort of the corporate dimension has been lost sight of. Um, that's a, a, a broader, more theological objection that he has. Uh, on second problem that he has with a traditional approach on, of a more explicitly exegetical character is that it fails to give attention to verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 and 8 are not uh, considered adequately in interpreting 4 through 6. That there's a tendency, and I think he's probably right in this, there's a tendency to lift 4 through 6 uh, out of context and seeing them as a unit and then uh, wrestle with uh, the verses uh, in terms of larger uh, dogmatic or systematic theological uh, perspective. Now, um, let's just amplify uh, Verbrugge's second point here, the use of verses 7 and 8. Uh, and let's take the time to read them. I don't have an overhead here, so you'll um, look preferably at um, Greek text. Ryder had to say just has had to say just what he's had to say. Profound observation, uh, verse seven. For uh, the ground which drinks the rain that comes down on it uh, frequently and produces uh, useful produce for those on whose account it is also being uh, tended or cultivated. That ground. The, 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 the fruitfully uh, producing ground um, receives blessings from God. But if, and you want to refer the participle at the beginning of verse 8, uh, if you're diagramming here all the way back to the land, the gay at the beginning of verse 7, if it produce thorns and thistles, it is useless or unprofitable and is uh, close or near to cursing. And then further, uh, it's destined for burning. Its end is burning. And um is saying now, uh, if we want to, uh, these verses provide a, an important uh, angle of vision on understanding uh, 4 through 6. Uh, the gar at the beginning of verse 7 indicates that what follows, what the writer is going to go on to say now, substantiates what's just been said. The gar gives very definite uh, connection. But uh, Verbrugge has a, a quite interesting and somewhat creative proposal here. Uh, specifically, in the background that he sees for verses 7 and 8. And he finds that background in the so-called Song of the Vineyard that we have in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. 
Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Um, a passage that um, I won't turn to, to read it, may be familiar to it. I remember when I was studying Hebrew in this institution, that was one of the stock assignments, uh, Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. I don't know if that's still done or not. But uh, what, what we have there is a parable, a parable in which uh, Israel, Judah, uh, is uh, being indicted for its unfaithfulness, and that indictment then is in the form of a parable, a parable where uh, Judah then is compared to a vineyard, a vineyard which the owner, and the owner here, um, uh, interpreting the parable, is God. Israel is like a vineyard which the owner destroys because of its failure to produce a crop. Now, in particular... um, just to get a little bit more specific now, um, and, and this is simply representing uh, considerations that Verbrugge calls to attention. Uh, we're working here with the Septuagint, and I probably should have ha- had an overhead of that here, but I don't. But in, in verses 2 through 4, 2 and 4 of the uh, Septuagint of Isaiah 5, um, you have the expression, I'll just write it up here quickly. Epoiesen, epoiesen, akanthos. Uh, it produced thorns, and um, that, and that's a that's a multiple motif. It's it's a, or at least a repeated motif in the in the vineyard parable in Isaiah five, and he. Uh, Verbrugge points out then how there is a reference to the akanthos in uh, Hebrews 6, 8. Uh, right there at the beginning, it produces thorns and thistles. So he sees a, a specific verbal link through the Septuagint. Um, but not only that, um, he brings in, as he sees it, other elements of correspondence between the parable in Isaiah and uh, the verses 7 and 8 here in Hebrews. And um, we'll indicate those further um, uh, correspondences in just a minute. Uh, but all that then, let me just say, all that disposes him to the view uh, that the writer in Hebrews has in view the situation that is depicted in the parable. That we have a specific uh, deliberate literary allusion here and um, that the writer then draws parallel conclusions from the Isaiah passage applied to Israel. He draws parallel conclusions to the situation of his readers, or better, to the situation of the church, the church. Um, just a, a further indication of the correspondences. In Isaiah 5, 6... Um, the owner commands that there will be no more huaton, no more rain on the vineyard. And Hebrews 5.7 refers to rain coming down on the soil. 
Um, in both, uh, again, in both uh, places, Hebrews and Isaiah, uh, what we have is ground that is unfruitful, ground that is not only unfruitful, but thorn-fruitful, or thorn-producing. Both situations, we have um, unprofitable, thorn-producing ground, and in both cases, experiencing the same fate, approximately the same fate. Uh, In Hebrews, um, burning takes place. Uh, You don't find burning in the Isaiah passage. What is described there is that the vineyard is turned into a wasteland, but then uh, Fabruga doing some background work um, reminds us that according to ancient uh, agricultural practice, uh, wasteland is burned off from time to time so that the fire, he's, he would argue, is there implicitly. Now, with, these, uh, with this link, um, and I'm not so much concerned here to... Um, you'll see how I want, I'll, a little bit further on down in our discussion, you'll see how I uh, assess uh, Verbrugge's argument as a whole. Uh, I'm not... Uh, so concerned here to um, to interact or, or, or pass judgment on how uh, impressive or compelling this uh, the argument of a linkage is. I think may, my, for myself, I think maybe it, it, it's he's pushing uh, just a bit. Although we we certainly can recognize a, a, a general similarity. But the point now that uh, further Verbrugge wants to draw out of this this parallel. Um, what he thinks we need to keep in mind, is that the vineyard is a parable, not just for certain individuals, but as Isaiah 5, 7 puts it, the house of Israel, the men of Judah. The house of Israel and the men of Judah. Parable doesn't apply to individuals, but to Israel as a corporate entity. So, Fabruga continues... This shows that in Hebrews, the writer's concern is not with individual election. His concern is not with the issue of perseverance in faith, or, uh, put that better, his concern, the writer's concern is not with the perseverance of believers as individuals, or more generally, Verbrugge argues the writer is not thinking about individual salvation, the salvation of individuals in this passage. But what he's concerned about is the relation of God to his people as a whole. Uh, The concern, the address in this passage is to the church as covenant community. Now what reinforces that further the the covenant perspective, if you will, Um, as as, uh, Verbrugge points it out, what uh, we have to consider further is the reference in verse 7 to eulogia, blessing, and then in uh, verse 8, katara, curses. And um, 
in that, in particular the way in which they're brought together here as contrast elements, as, as, as set in antithesis, uh, Verbrugge sees in that a reminiscence of Deuteronomy 11, 26 and following, where Moses says to the people, um, you know, choose today, what's it going to be, life or death, blessings and cursings. And then verse uh, 29 in chapter 11 uh, points forward then um, to, the, uh, to the ritual of proclaiming the blesses and curses from um, Gerizim and Ebal, as that's then... Amplified in, in Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28. Chapters 27 and 28. So uh, the blessings and curses are not just any blessings and curses, they're the blessings of the covenant. So, um, to round off. Uh, Verbrugge's presentation, his approach, the proper interpretation of the passage rests on this assumption. That's the assumption that it refers to the covenant people as a community. In view here is a corporate entity. It does not refer to the individual believer. And he sees that confirmed by the immediately preceding verses, chapter 5.11 through 6.3. Because in those verses, the writer, what the writer addresses is, is, is in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a sweeping way, um, or what, what he focuses on uh, is the immaturity, he focuses on immaturity in a rather sweeping way, the immaturity of the congregation as a whole, the immaturity of congregation as congregation. So all told, as Verbrugge sees it, Hebrews is a genuine letter. It's addressed to a particular congregation, church. We need to keep that in mind. It's not just some general um, address but is focused on a particular congregation. Uh, and it, it, it is interested in and addresses the individual in Old Testament fashion only as the individual is a member of the covenant community. Certainly individuals are will be hearing this letter and it's addressed to them, but they hear it in an Old Testament fashion as member of the covenant community. So that with all this, uh, verses 4 through 6 challenge the church in the way it should go by warning of the disastrous consequences of doing otherwise. The writer is arguing here that if the church should apostatize, there is no possibility of its restoration. If it abandons God, God will abandon it. But it is a corporate apostasy and a corporate abandonment that is in view here. 
Again, as we've already indicated, uh, for Verbrugge, the question of individual apostasy, the, uh, the apostasy of the individual believer, uh, whether or not that's possible, that, he says, is not in the writer's purview here. Yeah, I think you're, you're, uh, you're, you're right on, uh, on the target here. And, uh, well, let me, uh, maybe you can preempt me here. What, what indications... Uh, can you think of anything in the um, within this document itself that would um, you know ma- in effect make just the point that you're making? Anybody think of any passages that that come to mind here? The passage, the yes, and even more uh, s- uh, strongly uh, in um, uh, well, I shouldn't say more strongly, but also in chapter three, um, which is closer to the in that wilderness congregation context is, is closer here. Yeah, well, let me just say this. Um, I think Verbrugge has helped us in this respect, that he has uh, put his finger, if you will, on the nerve of the argument in this passage and in the other passages, and that is a covenantal focus, a corporate concern. And uh, just just to uh, to paint that uh, broadly here, he has uh, here put him uh, seen. I think what is the dimension of the uh, exhortation in the book of Hebrews as a whole, this corporate dimension. But the question that we have to ask, already asked, can the issue of individual apostasy be so easily brushed aside as he wishes to do, as irrelevant, uh, irrelevant to the writer and outside his purview. And that, I think, uh, is a question that that, uh, has to be answered negatively. No, it can't. Because plainly elsewhere, the writer warns against apostasy that is specifically individual. Bruce has already mentioned the example that's uh, brought in view in chapter 12, the rejection of Esau. That's rejection of Esau as an individual. Certainly he has corporate significance, but his in, uh, um, you, you, you can't play off individual and, and corporate. That's in 12.17. Um, I think maybe even more to the point, in 3.12, the writer warns against... Uh, there being in any one of you, in tinny who moan. Don't let there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief in falling away from the living God. So there the writer has certainly uh, individualized in a general way, as we could put it. So um, I think what Verbrugge does for us is not so much settle the interpretation uh, of the chapter 6 passage, as he uh, thinks. He doesn't so much settle, but I think what he does, and, I, and this is why I've taken the time to, um, to bring him into the discussion and especially uh, the Old Testament background that he draws attention to, uh, we can say that what he does is sharpen or uh, focus the problem for us. Uh, and as he does that, I think he, he points us in the direction of a right solution. That is... 
paying attention to the corporate. Uh, so the question, uh, as we could put it now, uh, before us as we move on, how are we to understand, how are we to relate to each other in these passages, the corporate and the individual? How, in the writer's outlook, are the corporate and individual dimensions to be understood? The corporate and individual uh, dimensions of apostasy. Or, as we could put the question, and I think this is a a fruitful way of posing it, and I, I hope I can that you'll appreciate that as we go on our discussion. Because uh, there are just such important pastoral uh, dimensions here. And, and I want to get at spelling those out later. But here, uh, the question before us now is this. What is the writer's covenantal perspective on individual apostasy? What is the writer's covenantal perspective on individual apostasy? Okay, I've talked on for quite a while here. Um, excuse me? Oh, good, we have to have a little drama. Somebody feels it at least. Um, anything on, on this first section on uh, basically oriented to Verbrugge, anything that needs to be clarified? Okay, uh, what I'd like to do now is direct our attention. Uh, secondly here, try to keep our structure clear, we have 4A and and B, Uh, I'd like to have us look at the passage in 1 Corinthians 10. Bring in the Apostle Paul as uh, interpreter. Uh, And that's not arbitrary, um, because there are a number of points of correspondence we're going to see in these verses. Um, And then that will open up... um, us to, um, to bringing in um, perspectives or, or, or input that we have from elsewhere in Paul. But there are a number of, of definite correspondences between the Hebrews passages and, and these verses. Uh, certainly this is the closest uh, Pauline parallel, if you want to put it that way. And um, let me, um, I do have an overhead here. Let me read parts of it at least. We'll, we'll f- develop kind of the same taxonomy that we did on the Hebrews passages. We'll see advantages described. We'll see responses to that, those advantages and the outcome because of that response. Uh, let's just read verses 1 through 4 first. I do not wish you to be ignorant, brothers, that our fathers, all our fathers, all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same pneumaticone, broma, the same spiritual food, all drank uh, the same spiritual drink. They were drinking of the rock that accompanied. That rock was Christ. Now, the accent 
in these verses, I think we can fairly say, um, certainly not distorting the passages for our purposes, uh, the, the accent here is on certain advantages that can be summed up uh, in what is said in verse 2, the advantage of being baptized into Moses. And here, uh, you can't help, um, maybe I shouldn't put it that way, but you must be sure to appreciate the covenant dimension. Because Moses is mediator of the covenant, the old covenant, covenant mediator. Uh, remember what the writer tells us in Hebrews 3. Moses is servant par excellence in God's covenant hyphen house. Uh, Moses answers to Christ as son in, in the one house. So that within, uh, particularly within the old old architecture of the house, uh, the old covenant construction, uh, he is certainly uh, the key figure, the mediator in that respect. And then later in the chapter, verse 16, um, those brought out of bondage are those who came out of Egypt through Moses. Excuse me, I shouldn't add to the text there. Let me just make sure that we get... Um, yes, Dia Mouseos. They were let out of bondage. They were redeemed through Moses. Moses is mediator. And then uh, further, just uh, that, that's the basic baptismal reality. Um, we can uh, see that uh, the dimensions of that further as to the medium of the baptism. The baptismal events, if you will, here are the cloud and the sea. The cloud and the sea. And the cloud, without going, taking the time to establish all the background, argue it, uh, Old Testament theology can surely show this. The cloud, you see, is uh, that unique cloud, the fiery cloud of God's spirit presence. God's spirit um, embodied in the fiery cloud leading his people and uh, leading them in events uh, that are redemptive, as we've already indicated, deliverance, uh, redemption from Egypt, as chapter 316 puts it. So there is, first of all, the advantage of being baptized into Moses with all of the covenant privilege that that involves. But then notice further here in this passage, um, as such a strong bearing on the whole question of the relationship between uh, the covenants, we're told here that the food and drink, the food and drink is qualified emphatically as pneumaticone. Pneumaticon broma, pneumaticon poma, verse 3. And it's important here um, 
that we, um, I think the only justice that you do to the pneumaticone in this passage is to connect it, to see that, to see the adjective here as it almost in every other instance in Paul uh, is the case, has reference to the Holy Spirit. So it's spiritual food and drink in the sense of Holy Spirit qualified uh, food and drink. This food as a means of grace. The food as a means of grace. And we can remind ourselves here, you see, of Deuteronomy 8.3, Deuteronomy 8.3, where we're told what the giving of the manna was all about. The manna is to teach that they live by the word of God. That man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So that the food, the manna, and more broadly here the the, the, the eating and drinking is has a sacramental character to it. There's a sacramental dimension. It is a means of grace. <clears throat> but then notice uh, somewhat, clim- well, certainly climactically here in these verses, uh, that all this adds up to a proleptic yet real presence of the messianic spirit. The spirit as the spirit of Christ. You have the strong emphasis in verse 3, excuse me, at the beginning of verse 4, excuse me, 3 and the beginning of verse 4 on um, the spirit and then the reference to Christ the rock at the end. Now, we're not going to be able to, I don't intend, and maybe you have in the seminar on Old Testament use of, New Testament use of the old, got in, gotten into all of the supremely interesting questions this, this uh, passage can, can raise about the use of the Old Testament. Um, and just uh, uh, without getting into that discussion here, simply accenting the, um, what uh, Paul is seeing there. So that is their advantage, a sacramental experience of the Spirit of Christ as they are those baptized into Moses. 